I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Darawal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's tough to call it work sometimes when you're filled with as much passion for some of this stuff as as I am. It's a wonderful way of life, but it is definitely a lot a lot of hard work. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Paul Sloan is the winemaker at Small Vine Wines in Sonoma County. Here, he and his wife Catherine work with the state-grown organic fruit planted in high-density vineyards. Paul joins me today to tell me more about making wine in California's North Coast. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining me. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's so lovely to have you on. Sonoma is uh, a place that I adore. I have never visited, but really adore the wines from there. So I'm really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about what you do and why you do it. Uh, I'm excited to share and thank you so much for uh, for hosting the uh, show today. I'd love to know a little bit about kind of how the whole wine journey first began for you. Well, um, you know, I grew up in Sonoma County about a half an hour from where I am farming now on a 250-acre horse and cattle ranch. Um had nothing to do with wine. Uh, and I got into wine. Uh, I'd been working in the restaurant industry since I was very young, about 14 or 15. I started bussing tables. Uh, the day I turned 21, I was working at a, a fairly high-end restaurant and asked my manager if I could uh, sit in on the wine tastings they were doing to build the wine program uh, so I could learn a little more about wine. Uh, six months later, I was running the wine program at that restaurant uh, um, and had the pleasure of studying under um, several different master sommeliers at a, um, a wine education course called the Sterling Vineyard School of Service and Hospitality, headed with uh, Evan Goldstein was kind of the founder of that program. And uh, that really sort of tipped me off to the world of wine. Um, but uh, the, the foods that we were serving at the restaurant were, were uh, fairly light fare, a lot of wild game and so forth. And so Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were definitely uh, kind of top uh, pairings uh, in, in my restaurant. So developed a great passion for, for those two varietals. Wow, six months. That really sounds like you're an overachiever, Paul, and somebody that just goes out and makes things happen. <laughs> I Yes, if I decide to do something, I'm kind of all in, <laughs> 100%. So. <laughs> wow. Um, first of all, I mean, it's all kind of falling into place how you kind of got the bug, but I believe there was also a, a particular bottle of Burgundy that you tried when you were first working in hospitality. Tell me a little bit about that bottle of Burgundy and why it stood out? You know, the restaurant was lucky enough to have a lot of Burgundy on our list. Um, so I, I was trying quite a bit of uh, older French Burgundies and so forth, and and many of them very good, but many of them probably waited too long to be enjoyed. Uh, but one night a gentleman ordered a bottle of uh, DRC, Domaine Romane Conti. It was a 1978 uh, from the Romane Conti vineyard. And that was, uh, at that point in my life, and probably still is to this day, the most 
most magical experience with wine that I've ever had. Um, the most cerebral, the most sort of, I, I call it a, a wine to me that's really amazing, draws me into the glass. Like I can't stop putting my nose in the glass and just sort of thinking about what's evolving, what's what's coming out of the glass. Um, uh, so that that really is what sort of sent me down the, the path of looking into how can we make wines that are maybe less opulent, like a lot of the California wines were at that point in time, and more sort of terroir-driven, more sort of uh, a deep sense of place uh, from the wines. So, um, so that's why the high-density plantings and my sort of... Uh, approach to, to farming um, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir um, more more like the old world um, in many ways. Wow. We're seeing quite a bit of high-density plantings in Australia as well. And I think for us, high-density kind of um, sits above that kind of 2,000, you know, 700 kind of um, vines per hectare it's kind of up above that and I believe you guys are around 2,700 to 3,600 and upwards in your classification per acre but I, I'm really interested to know because you are in the north coast which is a huge area Sonoma County is huge are you the winery situated in in the Green Valley uh, the winery is situated in the Green Valley yes um, yes but you grow grapes in Russian River Valley and Sonoma Coast is that right that's correct. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit, because when you look at, you know, a map and you're studying topography, it, it, it looks like lots of different jigsaw puzzles put together. So can you explain a little bit about the differences between the Russian River Valley and the Sonoma Coast? I mean, I know the Pacific plays a huge role. The way that fog rolls in is, is quite um, influential as well. But can you explain a little bit about the two sites that you source grapes from? Um, yeah, so we, um, we've planted over 40 vineyards out in these, uh, I'll say, call them coastal hills, uh, ranging from about 10 miles from the ocean to as close as about three miles uh, in from the ocean. Um, and the ridge lines here are through uh, tectonic plate collision. They've kind of risen up to about 1,200 feet, maybe 1,600 feet in the highest uh, areas. Uh, so that sort of stops the fog uh, coming in off of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, fog is a cold air mass, so it wants to stay as low elevation as it can. Um, so the farther south you are in the Russian River, the cooler you are. So you can have um, areas in the Russian River that are actually colder than what uh, a lot of the vineyards are in, in the Sonoma Coast, just based on your proximity to that kind of fog intrusion. Uh, so it's a really dynamic place to farm with a tremendous amount of microclimates. Um, I tend to find that plateaus and slightly east-facing uh, slopes uh, are my favorite. Um, obviously, when you're on a plateau of a ridgeline or or an east-facing slope, you're going to have good uh, drainage. Um, and you know, fog intrusion and wind are are prevalent uh, with this proximity uh, to the 
the ocean. Uh, there's a, an area called the Estero de Americano, which is just south of me, if about two miles. And that's the main wide valley for fog intrusion. So the fog kind of funnels in from the west heading east as it warms up during the day. And then that affects your wind and, and fog patterns. Remember the Pacific Ocean, um, kind of like in Tasmania or whatnot, you know, where you're, you're quite cold in Australia, the Pacific Ocean is between 48 and like 55 degrees uh, all year long. So it's quite a cooling engine um, for the growing region, uh, which gives us a very, very long season. We can have bud break in February and be harvesting in October. Um, so a very long season and it does not get very warm during the summer. It's, you know, a, a warm day for us is maybe 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so it's, uh, it's, you know, quite a unique place to grow a very maritime influenced, uh, growing region. Um, so, and, and you mentioned, uh, per hectare on spacing and, uh, you know, in, in California, we deal with, uh, acres. So we're, we're planting in, in hectares. We're in the 9,500 vines per hectare, uh, almost 10,000 vines per hectare, um, planting because we have 3,630 vines per acre uh, and it's about 2.4 acres, 2.38 acres per hectare. So, um, so it's pretty high density. I, I love that. Thank so. you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the conversion rate when you're just used to speaking in another form really messes with my head. So <laughs> that, that makes it very clear. Thank you. Now tell me, do you, are you planting because of that kind of slightly more moderate climate of Russian river and then that really cool climate of Sonoma coast, are you planting Chardonnay and Pinot on both sides? Yes. Um, you know, for for winemakers like me that want to do no additions whatsoever to my wine other than a tiny amount of sulfur to, you know, prevent oxidation and, and preserve the wine when they're complete. Um, clonal selection, plant material selections for different locations is critical. Um, so over the past 25 years, um, I've been putting a tremendous amount of research into what selections, uh, for example, in a slightly warmer climate, I, I want selections that hold on to their acidity more, that, that take longer to respire acidity um, so that I can get the pH in balance um, with the the fruit phenolic maturity and many times we would find you know the dijon selections from from burgundy to respire their acidity much too quickly in the warmer climates and the ph's of the wines require adjusting because they're too high and somewhat unstable so if you want to be a minimalist in the cellar like i am uh picking your different selections based on you know their characteristics not only for the soil, uh, but the climate and your goals as a winemaker, um, you know, is definitely something we put a lot of attention to. Uh, Chardonnay uh, is planted by me much less than than Pinot Noir. Um, 
Noir. I'm about two thirds Pinot Noir, one third Chardonnay, and um, we have a what we call a, a Wente selection, which originated from Montrachet back in the 1800s. Uh, and that uh, those selections, the the Wente selections, seem to be making the best wine uh, out in this area. Um, and there's lots of different uh, variations of it. Minor minor differences. Um, uh, that we're working with on Chardonnay. So mm, fascinating. Um, in terms of organic viticulture, I imagine that can sometimes be fairly problematic in somewhere like Sonoma Coast, where it can get quite cool and you do have that kind of, um, you know, that fog that comes through. Is that not an issue because most of your vineyards are above the fog line, or, or what? What are the challenges about organic viticulture where you are? Yeah, that's that's a great topic because we are organic and regenerative and we implement biodynamic practices. So we're kind of what we would call smart bio organic uh, with regenerative being <laughs> sort of the most important part of that. Um, and it is challenging. What I have found, though, you know, I've been over to Burgundy quite a few times and I brought a lot of farmers from Burgundy back to California to just help me figure out what what is not Burgundy about California? You know, what are the differences? Um, because if we want to make wines from this place, we have to be real about that, that this is California, not Burgundy. We can't just emulate. But the the things that I learned that are fundamentally true in in places that have high humidity, um, you know, ours coming from fog, Burgundy, maybe more through rain, um, is your canopy management uh, has to be impeccable. Um, you know, we have no more than 10 shoots per meter on a vine. We can have less than 10 shoots per meter, but no more than 10 shoots per meter. And when you do that, you have three and a half inches uh, plus or minus between every growth point. You have spaces between the leaves that airflow can get through and dry things out. You don't have clusters, you know, hanging on top of other grape clusters. And uh, so it that is the number one thing that helps. Um, you have to be fairly rigorous with your biodynamic preparations uh, going out and your mildew control program. Um, but uh, the most important thing is impeccable uh, canopy management. Um, and we, we do farm everything organically. All 20, 20 estate acres that we farm uh, are organically farmed. Yeah, you just can't escape that huge amount of hard work, it seems. Like all these people that start out in the wine industry and decide they want to have a vineyard and it sounds very romantic, but really it's just a lot of hard work, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's tough to call it work sometimes when you're filled with as much passion for some of this stuff as, as I am. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, you put a lot of hours in. There are times that no matter what's going on, you have to go to work uh, if you if you want to bring fruit in that's of high quality to your winery. So, uh, but then there are other times that, uh, you know, you can relax a little more. So, it's a, it's a wonderful way of life, but it is definitely a lot, a lot of hard work. So. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you love it so much. Paul, this is a 
a hard question to answer, but um, when you look at the landscape of um, Pinot Noir across the world, when you see Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir, and that I know is a huge generalization because of all the different areas, the regions, the aspect, the clones you're looking at, but what do you see as distinguishing features about Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir? Ah, wow. That's, that's a fascinating question. And, you know, it's there, there are, I'll say, mark, remarkable wines being made in, you know, several different locations around the world. And Tasmania is a place that I've tasted some incredible wines, which also shares a maritime uh, influence. And I see some similarities to those wines um, to the Sonoma Coast. And generally, uh, what I think is remarkable is you're getting... Uh, what I would call high tone wines, uh, often quite ageable. Um, with the higher density plantings, I, f- I find that the structure and tannin level of the wines is enhanced, increased, and just again adding to the ageability uh, of the wines. Um, they tend to be very food friendly um, wines because of the acidity and generally lower alcohol contents. And um, you know, the, the fruit profiles can range, and that's something I, I find that's quite interesting. You know, you can have very uh, high-toned red-fruited wines. You can have much darker-fruited wines. You can have different color flowers, purple and and red flowers, like roses and violets and so forth in the wine. So they are fairly dramatically different, but those characteristics of acidity, lo- generally lower alcohol, age-worthy and food-friendly tend to be true through the entire growing region. And and so I guess varietal typicity, um, you can tell it's Pinot Noir. You know, it's you don't have to guess uh, what region it's from. You People do start guessing. You know, a, a lot of people will say this is old world and uh, not that we're trying to mimic the old world, but that we're getting characteristics in the wines that are maybe a little less fruit and more tertiary um, out here in these cooler climates and especially with the higher density plantings adding to that. Um, so it's, it's just a remarkable place to, to have the pleasure to farm and, and live um, and, and produce wines from. I'm not sure if that exactly answered. <laughs> well, well, it did because it, it's like I said, it's it's a sweeping generalization of a huge range of vineyards and uh, terroir in in one one <laughs> paragraph to sum it up. But I suppose you kind of echo some of the feelings I have as well about um, tannins, texture, and savory qualities, along with really persistent, bright and quite floral fruits as well. So you've kind of said something that kind of would would kind of make sense from what my very small experience would be as well. I'd like to know a little bit in terms of, you know, having a high-density vineyard, wonderful thing to do from the outskirts, expensive, no doubt, but it's very difficult for some of these um, already established traditional vineyards to kind of change over and, and you know, go into – perhaps high density. Is that something you're seeing people transition to or are you an outlier within the, in your regions? 
I'm I'm definitely an outlier, um, and I think most of it is equipment availability. Most farmers want to be able to go down to a local dealer and, you know, buy a tractor and then have them service it or get replacement parts very easily. You know, the the tractors I'm using, I I purchased in France and put on a ship and ship them over to myself. And um, so it's, you know, it's definitely creates more challenges. Uh, I would never trade, I would never farm Pinot Noir in this region uh, differently, knowing what I know after doing it for 25 years. Um, but I don't see, you know, the thousands of acres of other vineyards uh, changing rapidly. They're, they're, they've narrowed, some people have narrowed from eight feet down to six feet, but still the most common vine row spacing is an eight foot tractor row. And that's all about fitting equipment down. It has nothing to do with, uh, with wine quality. It's all about the mechanization aspect of it. Um, so, you know, I, I think the people that are in it for higher quality wine are down in the six foot tractor row range. Uh, but not many people are going more narrow than that um, just because it is expensive and the equipment is still so specialized. Um, so I, I sort of jumped in headfirst, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And, um, and, and to me, it's, it's a competitive advantage because people are slow to change in, in agriculture. It gives me something very unique that not many other people are dabbling in, um, in the area and don't, don't really realize how special, uh, it can be when you find the right soil type. It's not a one size fits all high density has to be, you know, I, I often mention to people, if you think about what's inherent about a bonsai pot, there are three dimensions that are that are imperative to having a, a true bonsai. And that is the depth of the pot matters as much as the length and the width of the pot. Um, so if you have deep soils, uh, the vines might compete with each other laterally, but the roots will keep going down, finding water and nutrients and, and growing vegetative you need to have bedrock or a limiting factor in some way to stop the roots from going um, the majority of the roots from going deeper you want 85 percent of the roots to be within two feet of the surface of the soil uh, for high density to work uh, really well and and we have this sandstone bedrock so it's porous water can flow through it but it stops the vast majority of the roots at at two feet and that helps us regulate the vigor of the vines giving us uh, a perfect balance at these, you know, nearly 4,000 vines per acre spacings. Um, so, uh, so that's definitely uh, an important factor. For sure. I mean, in terms of when, when we talk about making a, a complete wine and a Pinot Noir that has, like you were saying, you know, the whole spectrum of, of flavors, uh, a lot of people and, and producers, you, you mentioned also Tasmania as well, are playing around with and successfully using whole bunch of whole berries because of your high density plantings. And like you said, the thicker skins, are you using any whole bunch in any of your wines? Are they all destemmed? That's a that's a good question, and I'm I would say that I'm either a hundred percent whole cluster in a fermenter or or zero. 
Um, so what I have kind of discovered over time is that certain selections are too concentrated um, and I can actually reduce the concentration level uh, by using whole cluster or whole bunch um, in the fermenter. And people kind of say, well, don't you get more tannin from the stems? I say, yes, that's true. But if you think about whole, whole cluster fermentations, you have those berries still connected to the stems. There's no easy pathway for yeast to find the uh, juice inside the berry. So I find that whole cluster fermentations are generally cooler temperature for a longer period of time, maybe 18 to 21 days for a whole cluster fermentation. So it's more uh, a lower temperature, longer um, fermentation and a whole berry um, destemmed fruit, there's a direct pathway into the juice. The fermentations tend to be 12 to 14 days and a lot warmer. And you're always kind of fighting the temperature and trying to keep it cooler. Um, so I feel I make great wine from both. Uh, and it's understanding and working with the same vineyards and the same selections over years that I discover where I make the best wines out of each and every vineyard. Um, and it can vary a little bit by uh, how much whole cluster I do by fruit set, how many berries are on a cluster, uh, for example, would would vary my percentage in the overall final blend, um, you know, what the percentage is. So um, so I, I dabble with both and I feel like the best wines I'm making are from the whole bunch, whole berry. I find the wines more complex, more interesting, sort of like uh, making Bouffe Bourguignon. Uh, you want a low and slow temperature for a very long cooking time. Um, yet uh, I feel like the wines from destemmed fruit, uh, when I'm deciding to do destemmed fruit for certain reasons, is better than I would have made from whole cluster in those particular scenarios. So um, lots to explore there still. <laughs> Definitely. It's ongoing. And I like your approach. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. It depends on what clone you're working with and where it's grown and then, you know, tailoring, you know, that recipe to suit, you know, what the site that you're on. Um, I love that you said uh, you mentioned something about being too concentrated. I just kind of had a giggle to myself because the amount of people making Pinot Noir that would <laughs> would just die at someone saying I've got too much concentration is uh, quite quite remarkable. Um, in terms of your oak regime, with power and concentration, um, and like you said, that density of fruit, you know often you need a little bit of oak to kind of pull that together. What is your approach to new oak? And again, does that vary depending on site and, and season? It, it does very much so depend uh, <laughs> and very slightly. Um, in general, I purchase enough barrels for 20% new oak and generally end up using somewhere between zero and 12 to 15% um, in most vintages. 
and uh, I'm looking for barrels with extremely tight grain wood uh, with a very uh, generally uh, a long cool fire um, so a toast level that's you know sort of an elegant toasting so there's no charring it's more a caramelization of the wood I want the the heat to get deep into the wood so you're not pulling out some of those woody characters of untoast like the woods hasn't been caramelized it hasn't changed those tannins to something sort of sweeter or or softer um so i'm i'm very picky about my barrels and i've i i kind of only work with a a couple i work with two you know uh, regularly and then I always purchase uh, and try some other Coopers one or two other barrels every year to to always be on the hunt for something new unique and special that might work well for my vineyards um, but usually I try them for one year and, and don't need to try them again <laughs> so <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I'm pretty particular and I'm a minimalist. Um, although I do believe in oak aging, both for white and reds, I use, uh, little to no new wood on whites and, and only about 12 to 15% most vintages in, in reds. Um, so. I'd love to know when you're not drinking your own wines, are there other wines from your county that you enjoy drinking? Someone else that you'd like to shout out you think is doing a particularly good job? Um, yeah, you know, there, there's a, uh, an association that I'm a member of, and it's called the West Sonoma Coast Vintners. Um, and that association, I, I think that most of the wines of the producers involved in that association are making incredible wines and are of note and worth trying. So that would be a good place to start is uh, just going on to the West Sonoma Coast and you could try the 15 or 20 different producers that are that are there. Um, you know, the, there's a gentleman by the name of Ross Cobb who I really think he's making some pretty cool wines. Uh, and John Raytech at Ceritas, uh, he's making some pretty nice wines uh, as well. And, and they're sort of uh, unique um, uh, to some of the other folks. So, um, so those two are, are, I think, very good. Uh, and when worth trying, but definitely go on to the uh, West Sonoma Coast Vintners uh, website and and take a look uh, at who's there and all of them are worth trying, in my opinion. That's fantastic. I really enjoy that because we talk about these wines and then I start salivating and I think, oh, I need to try more of these wines and I don't know where to start. So thank you. I appreciate that. On the podcast, I ask if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? It's a way to get us a little bit more of an understanding about you and, and your palate and what you'd drink at the end of a long day. <laughs> if I had three beverages for the rest of my life, champagne would definitely be uh, be on the top. <laughs> uh, and we're producing some sparkling wine now uh, from some of our colder uh, locations um, that are looking pretty exciting to me. So definitely love champagne. Uh, when it's, uh, I'll say a little bit more of a, a party environment, uh, high end tequila, um, is pretty fun and tasty, but sipping tequilas, these are very high quality. Sometimes, you know, making into like a jalapeno margarita or something like that. But, uh, but, uh, 
there's a uh, uh, a, a great uh, cocktail called the Sweet River Underground um, that has a um, jalapeno infused tequila and and so forth. Um, so that's a, a fun one. Um, and then you know I I just have to say that Pinot Noir is still uh, up there for me uh, on on top uh, of the heap. Um, you know, for still wines, I, there's nothing better than a very complex and interesting and compelling Pinot Noir that's made true to varietal characteristics and aged, uh, you know, somewhere in that eight to 15 year range where you're just finding magical attributes in a wine that you can think about for hours and days. Um, so that that would probably be uh and i know that's all over the place right i mean champagne to tequila to to pinot noir but <laughs> and there's always a good cold beer you know to add a fourth in after a hard day's work on a warm day so, <laughs> so. in australia we we consider that a given the the cold beer after the end of the day is 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 uh non-negotiable <laughs> paul we could definitely drink together i <laughs> it is, it is. What did they say? A lot of wine wouldn't get made if, if there wasn't the beer, but we could definitely drink together. I'm a big fan of champagne, tequila, and Pinot Noir in any order with any meal. I could do any of those at any time, and uh, I think that you have fantastic taste. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope we have the chance to uh, drink together one of these days. Uh, I definitely have it on my bucket list to get to Australia, and um, I will definitely look you up when I am heading that way. Please do. I'd love to introduce you to some wonderful restaurants or sommeliers that could, uh, you know, flog your booze, as we say. But uh, it has been such a pleasure. I found this a fascinating chat and I think uh, you're doing an amazing job over there. Well done for the foresight and uh, congratulations. And thank you for spending some time with me today. It was my pleasure. And thank you for uh, hosting me on the show. And I look forward to uh, meeting you in person in the future. Have a wonderful morning. <laughs> Sounds good. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.